Bonjour, I am Estelle, your host, and this is Wildlife Conservation Insights, the podcast dedicated to the connections between wildlife and human being. You want to know more about wildlife, about what's going on, why some species are getting endangered, what are the challenges our world is facing? You want to meet people that dedicate their life to save animal species? You want to be proactive and also participate in species conservation? This podcast is for you. Welcome to Wildlife Conservation Insights. This is episode 13. The podcast is celebrating one year of existence. It started last June 2021. I am happy to have over 1,100 listeners from 74 countries. Thank you so much. This audience is primarily from the US and France, with the UK and Australia right after. I am delighted to have people from Africa, South America, and Asia listening to this podcast. Thank you, thank you so much. Sometimes it is very delicate, it is a delicate task to get more in depth in some of the hot topic because it can be controversial. However, for the next episodes, I will try to get deeper into a more epidemiological or analytical approach. I really need your feedbacks to improve this podcast. Please do not hesitate to reach out at Wildlife Conservation Insights, all in one word, at gmail.com. Wildlife Conservation Insights at gmail.com. So, my guest for this episode is Suzanne Stone. She's currently the executive director of International Wildlife Coexistence Network on the Western front lines of wolves restoration since 1988, including the 90s, Idaho Yellowstone wolf introduction teams, Cezanne developed many of the non-lethal methods used around the world today to minimize wolf and livestock conflict. She is the founder of the Wood River Wolf Project, a 15-year demonstration study that has proven the effectiveness of non-lethal coexistence strategies over traditional lethal control of wildlife. She's also a member of the IUCN Canid Specialist Task Force. Without further ado, it is my great pleasure to welcome my guest, Suzanne. I hope you enjoyed the travel. Hi, Suzanne. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Hi, Estelle. Hi, I'm super happy to have you as my guest today. That's wonderful. So, well, I'm based in France. Right now, it's it's about the end of the afternoon. It's beautiful, sunshine. How is it in your part of the world? <laughs> I'm in Idaho, and I am. Uh, it's early in the morning here, and it's a beautiful day. We had snow a few days ago, and we're supposed to have weather in the 80s this weekend. So it's a wild spring here. Yes. Oh, gosh, yeah, totally different than me. <laughs> For me, it's almost summertime now. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and basically how you got into the field of conservation and what you're doing? Boy, I, you know, there were so many points during my life, especially as a kid. I grew up just absolutely in love with nature. So when I had time to, to go play, I was usually 
playing at the uh, creek near my grandmother's house or uh, at the beach and just uh, always exploring the, the woods around my home. I knew them really well and I loved being outdoors. So I was always observing, you know, the animals that were there and just trying to learn more. And it just felt like it was home, you know, being out there among them. And so uh, when I was older, late teenage years, I saw one of the last uh, red wolves in Texas uh, where I was growing up at the time. And it was just this wild encounter. I knew it wasn't a coyote, which we see fairly frequently because it was much larger. And we just had this moment where we locked eyes and I thought, you know, I am seeing something really special. So I went home and tried to find, you know, what a, we don't have wolves in Texas. What, what was this thing out there in the woods? And uh, found out that indeed we did have them and that this was one of the last of the red wolves. And then I ran into the book um, Of Wolves and Men by Barry Lopez. And that's still one of my favorite books today. After I read that, and especially the essay by Aldo Leopold, Thinking Like a Mountain, uh, that was it for me. I knew then that that was going to be my whole life of uh, working to bring these animals back and give them a place, hopefully safe from persecution. Mm-hmm. Wow. That was a beautiful moment, I guess, uh, change your life. And so how were you able to find your way through this field, basically? What was your path? So I I tried all different types of college choices, you know, just looking at like political science, would that be helpful? Would biology work? Would, um, you know, what was really needed? And there were a lot of biologists at the time. So I was, I was doing an internship for uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is the federal wildlife agency mm-hmm. and the Nez Perce tribe. And my supervisors, um, mentors, just said, you know, we have so many biologists out there. We need somebody that can actually work on the conflict part of this. So instead of just doing straight biology, I went into more conflict resolution, how you get communities and people to, to identify ways that they can adjust to living with wildlife. And that turned out to be the best way to go because, you know, it really, the wildlife don't need a lot of help from an ecological standpoint, at least in my part of the world, we still have plenty of habitat left here for them. It's the human tolerance that is Mm -hmm. really the thing that most controls uh, their uh, ability to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. So you went into this field, which is actually not an easy one on dealing with people more than dealing with animals. Uh, that's the artist. I guess for everyone, you know, including veterinarians, we actually have to deal with people a lot, and not just the animals, which is, as I said, you know, the easy, the easy part for me, uh, at least. And so you started working for different company I saw, right? So right, right now, can you tell us a little bit about the company you're working for, which is actually an NGO? Yes, it's the International Wildlife Coexistence Network, and we're only um, a little over a year and a half old. Mm-hmm. But we have people that have been working on this kind of um, effort, this focus for decades. And, and it it just dawned on us as we were working around the globe and reaching out to each other that we had a lot of common needs and a lot of common resources that we could best share together. So it was uh, it was through that that we came together. And, and what we discovered, you know, just 
as we were doing our work, it's really that there weren't many people working in this field. It's so brand new that um, we realized that there was nothing that was helping to tie us together so that we could share resources, so that we could help mentor new people coming into the field. And, and then just, you know, look at how we monitor for like best practices. How do we, how do we you know, keep pushing to make it even a better outcome for, you know, the goals that we have in the field. And it was at that point, we just went, you know what, we need our own organization to do this. So um, it was literally people coming together from all over the world that just went, let's, let's do this. Let's bring it together and then create um, a network that we can help support other people as they're coming in. Because often people, you know, understand the need. They see that the conflict often drives animals to the edge of extinction or that, you know, it causes loss of habitat or you know all of the other things that really negatively impact animals on our planet but you know if they're by themselves or they don't have a you know a way of understanding what other people have done they will try something and often it will fail because they just don't have the resources right so we wanted to like be there to help provide those resources so that they can have a place to go have all these interdisciplinary experts help with identifying what has worked in the past, what's working in the future, and then, you know, be so open to new ideas, because that's really, we have to change the paradigm of our relationship with with nature at the wildlife management level, because it's really not about managing wildlife, it's about managing us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that approach has to change, because, you know, we know now that, that wildlife they're so imperiled. You know, we've never seen a time when we've lost more wildlife on the planet than we have in the last 50 years during the entire time that humans have been here, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it is it, it is in such a crisis stage that we have to have a new way forward in order to, to be successful. Yeah, definitely. So it's uh, so for doing that, as you mentioned, you need a team, like together a team of people with different skills and to bring them together to be able to solve out many, many different issues. So can you tell us a little bit about one project you're currently working on? Oh, picking one is hard. (laughs) (laughs) One, um, you know, the one that started us was the Wood River Wolf Project here in Idaho. And that was the one that we used as kind of the, the... the baseline project it's really what got us to where we are now it's starting year 15 you know from the beginning when we first started the project we were told by wildlife scientists you know around the world that there was no way that we could actually do what we were setting out to do that you couldn't use these non-lethal tools to help protect uh, in this case it was sheep and you know thousands of them across a large rugged landscape as we have here in Idaho. And so the prevailing thought was that you could use non-lethal tools like lighting and, and sound devices and things like that, but only in like a, a pasture situation and never across you know, a, a big landscape. Mm-hmm. And we did a literature review, looked at like, you know, who else has tried this and, and discovered that really no one had tried it. So they were just dismissing it before actually trying it across the large landscape. So we thought, you know, we can try and if we fail, then we fail and we'll we'll just add to the literature that, you know, the science that it is um, not possible to do it. But what we discovered 
after our first year is that, that we were very successful at preventing any more um, losses that occurred between wolves and, and sheep in our project area. And, and everybody got together after that and said, oh, well, you got lucky. So will you try it for three years? And we thought, okay, we'll make it a three-year demonstration project. So we we set out to do that. And over that three years, we had 20, 25,000 sheep in a you know a highly intense, very rugged terrain. And it it was like we've had a few hit and misses here and there, but overall we averaged uh, about five sheep loss out of that 20 to 25,000 yeah, annually yeah. without having to kill wolves, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we got to the end of the three years and they went, okay, well, you know, that's great, but let's try it for seven years and see what happens, right? You know, by then we'll really know if if during seven years, if, if this is just a, a fluke or if, if you're going to be able to keep this up. And um, so we did it for another seven years and our methodologies improved. Our losses stayed that minimal number, sometimes zero during a year, um, but never more than on an average of five. And then we started studying what was going on in other areas adjacent to us that had similar terrains, same livestock, um, sheep, uh, often the same wolves, and where they were not applying these non-lethal measures uh, consistently or even at all at times, their losses were 10 times the amount that we that we had. Um, and it was just it was just night and day difference between the two places. And we're spending less money to do it. So now we're in year 15. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, wonderful. So now you have enough. Yeah, you have actually enough data to be able to be published and, and be able to demonstrate that that really works. So can you tell our audience a little bit more about uh, these non-lethal tools? So the the tools vary based on the type of livestock, the terrain, um, often sometimes the time of year. So, for example, we um, our shepherds usually use one or two livestock guardian dogs per band of sheep, and our our sheep bands can run between 800 and up to 1500 or so sheep. Um, and so two dogs really wasn't enough. It was it was okay for coyotes, but for wolves, mm-hmm. uh, wolves, you know, look at the world through scent, through, you know, they see livestock guardian dogs, interpret them as being funny looking wolves. So a pack of only two wolves is not a strong pack, right? So we knew that we needed to increase the number of, of livestock guardian dogs out there. So we did, you know, we worked with the, the, the uh, in our case, we call them ranchers, um, for farmers who then added greater, you know, greater numbers of dogs to each of the bands. And um, the other part of that was also helping them understand how to look at the world like a wolf, because in a wolf's world, they only breed once a year. They have pups in the springtime. Mm-hmm. They're, they're out there now. And to a wolf, the strange wolves are the biggest threat to their pups. So even though they may not be brave enough to take on a livestock guardian dog or a strange wolf sometime later in the year, in defense of their pups, they 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 become much more courageous. And 
um, much more worried about defending their pops. So, you know, we help the ranchers understand that, you know, there's a certain time of the year when the dogs are actually an attractant. So while they're a great tool most of the year, this time of year and close to den sites, they're they're going to cause problems as opposed to fixing them. So it's it's a kind of like, you know, we're learning kind of through the eyes and ears and nose of the wolf and uh, helping them do the same. And then we're also learning a lot about the needs of livestock. So, yeah. you know, what it, what needs to happen there? But we have lights. We have um, a tool called Fladry that we used early on in the project a lot that came from Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. and it's used as a method to try to to kill wolves. But um, uh, my graduate professor, Dr. Marco Musiani from the University of Calgary, was the one that you know looked at that Fladry and thought, gosh, we could just use this as a non-lethal tool instead. And now that is being used around the world um, with wolves and other types mm-hmm. of creatures. Anything that uh, that elevates the animal's sense of risk, yeah. that, that they perceive that there are humans close by. Mm-hmm. Foxes are another great tool. But the big thing is that you have to be proactive with these measures. You can't wait until there's you know, a bunch of livestock losses going on and then expect that it's going to to be easy to change. You want to get in ahead of it and make sure that, that the, you know, the wolves as they come in understand that there is a, a greater risk with the livestock than there is um, with their natural prey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So it's basically a combination of different tools and you adjust the use of these tools based on the biology of the wolves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so depending it's on the season and yes, absolutely. So we're working with the Lion Guardian program in Africa. I think it's the same there with lions, with the elephant program. You know, there it's again the same sense of risk. Yeah. So some of the things that they use are things like, um, you know, beehives uh, along the fence line. Elephants don't like to be stung, Mm -hmm. especially you know, they're sensitive and they're stout. So um, just giving this elevated sense of risk. uh, Find, basically finding out what what would act as a deterrent and and using it yeah it's working with nature yeah. instead of against <laughs> against her and i guess it takes also um a lot of people skills to be able to explain that to basically well people that lives with livestock uh, livestock owners or even rangers, as you mentioned, I guess it's a it, you have to do a lot of work um, discussing all these measures with people to be able to make them understand that because initially you are in the trial phase, and then when it starts working, you have to imp- keep implementing it. So it takes a lot of patience. I guess, you know, to make them understand. And once it works, well, you know, in people's minds, they're going to associate, okay, these measures are going to be okay. We can use them. But I guess all the, the, all the preliminary work is actually the, the most difficult one, right? I, I think that the, that the hardest part is convincing people that, that there is a better way, that they've done the certain way of raising livestock over and over again for generations. And you, you must respect that this is what has made them successful. Mm-hmm. But when you introduce or you know have the, the issue of a, 
an animal that really needs a change from that system because it's impacting their ability to survive in the world, um, whether it's elephants or you know wolves or sea turtles, whatever it is, mm-hmm. that some of our practices often lead to you know really bad outcomes for them. And so if we can adjust our behavior and our way of doing things in a way that complements um, nature, we all win. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yes. So I think, as you mentioned earlier, so you, you, you mentioned your parts of working on this specific project, but I guess um, then this methodology was also used or at least tried with different predators or different species. And um, so are you still in contact with the organization or NGO that are working on that? On the Wood River Wolf Project, we manage yes. that project. So yeah, that is still, I was one of the founders uh, for the project and then uh, we are still managing it today. So we won't always want to have like a boots on the ground mm-hmm. project because it is what makes us able to understand it from that level. There's a lot of um, NGOs that come in and think, you know, that they really want to support and get involved in wildlife coexistence work, but it does take really specialized skills and it takes understanding what the limitations are on the ground. It it also takes um, an understanding of those agricultural communities so that you don't cause a a long-term, you know, rift with the community so that they reject these things outright. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it also, you have to be able to know when to change your tools because wildlife are smart, you know, wolves, bears, mountain lions, all, you know, they're all pretty clever. If, if they're able to survive with us on the planet, they have to. And if you use a certain tool too long, they'll become habituated to it. So you have to know, you know, what's the duration of t- that you can use different types of lighting or um, the flattery, for example, and and when do you need to change that so that you maintain that uh, sense of risk and then keep that tool in your toolbox so that you don't um, lose something that's important to have when you're when you're working um, with these predators. So it's a big part of it is actually carcass removal. You know, just um, around livestock in particular, we've seen Everywhere that wolves have advanced, almost every conflict has been caused by uh, a carcass pit of them, them finding dead livestock in an area where, you know, there's a buildup of dead livestock uh, where the farmers are dumping them. And then wolves have this incredible sense of smell. I mean, that, that's that's like if they had to ha- have one superpower Um, identified with the species it would be their sense of smell right because they have they can interpret the world we even think that they dream in in scent right because of how much of their brain is associated with interpreting scent so they can smell and they're scavengers they can smell this these dead carcasses from you know miles and miles yeah well for them it's free food so you know they're not going to waste their time and energy to to basically hunt if they have a free meal (laughs) they have a free meal everybody signs up for the free meal program right so but when they get there they probably will make the same decision that you and i would make if there's this you know carcass pit sitting there and it's maggoty old stuff and it's rotting and all that yeah they'll eat it if they have to but if they look across the fence and there's brand new spring lambs they might very well jump the fence and opt for their spring lambs yeah, instead. 
but they wouldn't have been there to begin with mm -hmm. if it hadn't been for the carcasses being out there. So that's one of the biggest things that hurdles that we have is just helping people understand that keeping their, you know, their property cleaned up from that will help reduce that as an attractant um, and and make them better neighbors. Yes. So you, you actually made a good point and uh, I would like to ask you something related to that. So were you able to correlate your success based on the years? Because I'm assuming that, you know, every year, every year is not the same. There are some years where where food is abundant, you know, and, 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 and wolves can actually hunt and find their food really easily. And on some other years, I guess, you know, it's way more difficult for them to find food. And so they will be more prone to actually hunt uh, livestock. So were you able to find out now that you have a little bit of, I would say, a lot of background, actually, and a lot of data, yes, to, to be able to correlate and to make sure that your tools actually work, even if, you know, uh, wolves are actually looking for food when they don't have uh, a lot of food um, abundance in their environment. Sure, and in our in our project area in central Idaho, we have well statewide we have over a hundred thousand elk and probably half a million deer or more. I mean, there's a lot of of native prey here for them. So wolves are very good at finding their prey. You know, if they need to move. Uh, even you know miles away that they can do that the, the thing that seems to affect them more than anything is um, the attractants part of it that if there are you know uh, animals like sheep that are left alone at night and the wolves detect that there's no protection with them no dogs or not enough or um, you know there's just nothing there to protect them Sheep um, die from all kinds of reasons, mm -hmm. and you know we lose thousands of them to coyotes uh, throughout Idaho um, every year because they're so vulnerable to predators. So, it, you know, making sure that those um, non-lethal protection tools are in place is, especially when they're on top of where wolves are denning or if they're in a known rendezvous area, it's so important to keep that consistent. Otherwise. Um, you know, they're very vulnerable to, to being lost. Um, so what we found, though, is the tools that we're using for wolves is also working for bears. It's also working for coyotes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, across the board, it's helping reduce the amount of wildlife that's being killed to protect these livestock, um, the sheep, and far fewer livestock being killed as well. So it's it's just this huge win-win. And so, yeah, and after 15 years, you know, now the, this will be our 15th year, we have enough data to be able to show that, you know, this, it, it doesn't matter what the prey base has been. It doesn't matter almost what the weather has been. Although the, I think the drought years create more stress in the sheep and that mm -hmm. that stress translates into more um, predation loss. But sometimes it's the health of the sheep. It's certainly about how, mu how much, how um, much, protection they have are there is there a herder you know nearby are there livestock guardian dogs nearby is you know it, it it's all tied together absolutely so are you hoping that this program could actually spread out to other countries i'm thinking about france well i'm french and we are also having this type of issue here it's very difficult to solve out it's very controversial no one really agree on nothing 
So it's, uh, yeah, it's complicated. Have you, well, is it something that you're considering? It is, and especially I've been to um, Provence and other parts of France and, you know, looked at the areas where wolves um, and, um, you know, have been killing sheep and, and it's so similar in the landscape mm -hmm. um, that it seems like we could take some of the methods from the Wood River project and certainly try them in that place and, and see if we have the same results there. Uh, it is uh, certainly worth trying. Yeah. Okay, and great. They're doing, they're doing it in other parts of the world. There's a project in Greece right now that's, that's copying the Wood River Wolf project, and uh, they've been successful. They try it with different types of species. Uh, there's one in the Levant in Israel right now that's using some of our methods uh, to work on wolf and sheep and goat um, protection there, cattle as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's definitely, I think it's definitely worth trying. That's great. So um, if we get a little bit more in depth, how do you think that your action participate in species conservation? Do you think that your action, like the, the NGO you're working for, actually participate in, in conservation of different species? Well, it's pretty obvious for everything from everything that you already told us. But yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's essential that we change how we approach wildlife management. I, I really do. That is, you know, I think what was established 50 years ago really was based on this thought um, belief that wildlife was unlimited, that it was just, you know, you could kill animals that you didn't want to have or, you know, when there was an inconvenience to having them on the landscape, when there was conflict, and that we did this for so long that we are wiping out species that, you know, really we need to have here. There's such a, an important part of our biodiversity. And often it's the predators, but it's always, almost always the larger mammals that really take the, the brunt of our, our conflict efforts. So mm -hmm. if we can identify, you know, a new way of changing our management thoughts so that we're working with nature, I, I, it would change everything. And, and I think we have to, it, it's, it's almost too late to, to, to yeah. do anything else. Uh, it has it has to be in big steps now, and not you know small actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with you. How or who actually inspire you? Oh boy, there's so many. Well, growing up, Jane Goodall, you know, was yeah. just amazing. <laughs> um, well, now today, people, Senator Cory Booker was another one that I'm just amazed at his leadership and his compassion for animals and, you know, so inspired that he's able to take that um, into his work in Congress. And we need people like that to be the voice for animals. I also had the very major privilege of and honor of, of working with the Nez Perce tribe since I was um, an intern in college. Um, the One of my mentors was the the head of the wildlife division for the Nez Perce tribe, but then became the chairman of the tribe. And I just, I learned so much from him that, um, you know, he would talk about how the return of wolves was really the return of the heart of his people and how the mountains had never forgotten that, that uh, they still remembered the howl of the wolf. And even though there were no wolves left, that it was, you know, it was something that was temporary in terms of nature. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Barry Lopez was an incredible mentor. We just lost him last year. Um, and sorry. he was a bright light on the planet. Um, thankfully, he left all of his beautiful works and they're still inspiring millions of people. So, yeah, lots of people. So he was one of them. So we're going to conclude. We are almost at the end of this uh, episode now. And, um, well, I would like to know which, uh, basically, which message you would like to deliver to the next generation of young people, because a lot of people actually want to be involved or to get involved into conservation. And they want to know also at their own scales, you know, what they could do to help protect species. So which message would you tell them? Yes, learn everything you can. Um, but trust your instincts because you're going to have to learn how to say that you think something else is more important than the way that we've always done things. So push back. Um, don't take no for an answer mm-hmm. and uh, change the paradigm. It is. It has to be changed. We have to heal this relationship with nature and in a way that we complement nature uh, rather than accepting or expecting that 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 nature is somehow going to have, be able to survive yeah. with the amount of bullying that we do on the planet mm-hmm. uh, in in terms of uh, wildlife, yeah. so yeah, it is. I you know it's great to have good mentors out there, um, but the established way that we manage have managed wildlife over the last century is unacceptable and we have to change it. So mm-hmm. it will be this generation that has the opportunity to define what that looks like. And it could not be a more exciting or more challenging time. Yeah, I definitely agree. <laughs> Thank you. That's that's wonderful. Thank you so, so much, Suzanne, for your time and uh, everything, like uh, all the story you just tell us. It's It's beautiful, but it's also... It's beautiful in a way that it gives hope, and that's really that's really really neat. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me, and I I hope you get to make it to your Idaho um, someday. We would love to show you. Our oh project. yes, I would I would love <laughs> to see that. Yeah, that would be a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye, Sam. Thanks for listening to Wildlife Conservation Insights podcast. You can find more about myself and the show, including our guests, on estelvet.com. If you like it, share it. I have also created a Facebook page, Wildlife Conservation Insights, dedicated to my current practice. Hit subscribe and leave us a review. Once a month, I will present about wildlife health news around the world in the show called What's Going On in the Wildlife Side. This show will still be part of the Wildlife Conservation Insights as a bonus. Do not hesitate to reach out. Bye-bye.